From Central Sauce and the Fifth Element Podcast Network, this is In Search of Sauce, a celebration of the writers who are saving music journalism from death by clickbait. content creator and central sauce contributor my last name is not important with me i have my good friend mickey a writer at central sauce and a few other places as well as the host of the fifth element radio show 92 2 mickey let us know what you've been listening to lately <laughs> Yo, what's up? Uh, I feel like that introduction actually, I don't know if you did it on purpose, really ties into the piece that I'm bringing today, so you nailed it right on the head. Um, and uh, what have I been listening to? Mostly a lot of that new Weekend album, more than anything else for sure, but I also have really been bumping the new FKA Twigs uh, album that just dropped too. I feel like there's a lot of heat on that. Absolutely, Mickey. Absolutely. And yes, this was an intentional choice. Also joining me today is the always venerable Tyler, creator of the sen- uh, the seasoned sauce playlist, <laughs> excuse me, and the writer for Revolt's A to Z webcomic. Tyler, what have you been playing lately? Oh, what's good, what's good? Um, I have also been playing uh, Dawn FM Hella. Like it's kind of, it's I kind of hate that me and Mickey share the music taste, the same music taste most times. When I listen to a episode, I'm like, oh shit, that's that's me right there. That's my brother. That's my twin. Uh, <laughs> but um, also been playing because of um the Quiet Storm um article um for the past few days. I've been listening to uh, a lot of Anita Baker. Um, cause why wouldn't you? <laughs> why wouldn't you? Um, and also just been going into a lot of my, I want to say classics, but like some of my personal favorites of like, once again, I'm on a food and liquor kick again. I'm on a late registration kick again. And oddly enough, a comeback season Drake, uh, kick again. So yeah. Excellent. Excellent. Comeback season indeed. And of course, what have you been listening to? Well, I'm glad you asked. I have actually been listening to the smooth, sensual sounds of Drank in My Cup by Kurt Bangs, a record that <laughs> we frankly don't talk about enough. Um, I agree, I agree. In this episode, we've actually got three excellent pieces as usual. We've got something about collecting, basically. We have a, a, an article from Pitchfork by Mosey Reeves called The Race to Save Hip-Hop's Lost Eras, and one that chronicles sort of rap history and finding traces of rap history materials from decades ago in the starting days of hip-hop we've also got a really great piece from me um tyler was, was the other piece but mine of course is from david dennis jr at the undefeated and it is an odds play a gambling odds play on who would be the best to beat jay-z at a versus Jay-Z, of course, is a rapper from Brooklyn. And first, of course, we have an excellent video, audiovisual piece from Vox called Quiet Storm, How 1970s R&B Changed 
late night radio and mickey that's your piece i believe right yes sir well you should we uh get right into it i would love that tell us about the piece cool um i firstly am not gonna you know describe this piece in the quiet storm voice because i cannot compete with elliot's quiet storm voice <laughs> but i will talk about <laughs> this uh i think pretty incredible video so again uh, like elliot said it's called uh, the name of the video by vox is called quiet storm how 1970s r&b changed late night radio and it is part of a video series that is entirely produced uh, with a team but mainly by and um narrated by estelle call uh caswell estelle caswell uh and uh the series is called earworm uh and there's a plethora of different videos that kind of are a balance of music nerddom and uh music appreciation from a kind of like a fan appreciation level and it kind of has this this interplay of those two things and there's some other great videos one about like uh this specific brand of trucker country of that existed like sometime between the 50s and the 70s that uh kind of top the charts at various times there's this whole episode about um travis scott sicko mode and the dub reggae influence a whole episode about pop music's falsetto obsession um and this one that that i'm bringing again about quiet storm 1970s uh late night radio to me was maybe the most compelling of them all but definitely one i wanted to bring because as Tyler uh, said earlier, talking about us twinning, uh, we we have continual text threads about R&B, so I thought that this would be a good one for the crew uh, that we have today. Um, yeah, so just to kind of expand on what I said initially about the series being that blend of music nerddom and music fandom, uh, it actually feels that the best way to compare what Earworm does to me is it, it's kind of comparable to the sort of um, like Trevor Noah, John Oliver, uh, Hassan Minhaj approach uh, with kind of comedic news. Um, because it, it starts with this thing that feels like a um, an initial observation or a question and then slowly kind of peels the layers of this thing. And a lot of the times with those kind of shows, it does it in kind of a historical context, um, though not always. But with this episode of Earworm, particularly, it's very much about the historical context. Um, so this one very cleverly, I think, starts out with uh, the outro of Drake's song After Dark off of the Scorpion album. Um, which is this kind of minute-long clip from a late-night radio show out of the Buffalo area. And for people who don't know, Buffalo and Toronto, where Drake uh, came up, are very close to each other on opposite sides of the Canadian-American border. Um, and it it talks to... The video kind of brings in a clip of, of talking to the guy who's responsible for that clip of radio and talking about... Uh, how he existed, how he came upon being on the song, and then what kind of radio show he did. And then it slowly revealed that he is a part of uh, a, a very historical uh, radio program, late night radio program called Quiet Storm Radio that originated in D.C. in 1976 by a guy named Melvin Lindsay, who was an intern at WBUR, the only black owned radio station in D.C. at the time. 
um, and that the name of the, the, the Quiet Storm radio just kind of was happenstance of one radio show he did on a whim. Uh, and it was named eventually was named after a song by Smokey Robinson. Um, there's a bunch of different kind of details that I could get into, and I don't want to make my intro a million uh, a million minutes as much as I could because there's a lot of things. But I kind of just wanted to talk about the the general thing that I think the video does really well. And we can talk about specific things, but I definitely encourage everyone to watch it. But it's the kind of interweaving of the historical and political context of the video with the the, the musical relevancy um, that's going on at the time between kind of politically charged music and, um, you know, just kind of relaxed just like love music or emotional music and how they're kind of going off of each other based on society. And then like the upper upward mobility of the, the black population in DC and in the country over the period of time, post civil rights movement and how there was kind of like this representation uh, needed on radio for music that was kind of taking a, a break from the kind of politically charged music and a, a real, there was a yearning for that as a part of uh, the kind of daily listening of people. And that's kind of what emerged in this radio. And then it kind of is uh, sandwiched by two very politically charged periods, which is pre this in the civil rights era. And then post that, which is comes with uh, kind of the eighties and hip hop. Um, But the, this one particularly interviews a lot of um, people who are within the quiet storm radio system, but also kind of music experts about, Uh, chronicling that time and again it's like peeling the layers of an onion over and over again with different clips from the time and different interview clips that uh really tell a a very well-rounded story of of quiet storm radio and its significance um so yeah i definitely encourage everyone again to to really check out and dig into the video because there's so many things and we'll talk about a few more things but before we get into that i wanted to ask you guys because it did exist uh, around me growing up in my area in Baltimore, but did you have either a specifically Quiet Storm radio that you remember hearing growing up program or one um, that was like by a different name in your area or j- just any late night? Do you have like a late night R&B radio memory from your youth or have, do you still listen to late night radio because they still exist? I'll let Tyler go first because I, my answer will be vastly disappointing, I think. Okay, Tyler. So I do. Um, I remember coming home or getting picked up by my grandmother from school when I was in elementary school, and she would literally put on Choir Storm Radio, one of the ones that would be going on all day. And God rest her soul, she's what introduced me to Sade, Teddy Pendergrass, um, Nita Baker. And those artists made an impact on me so much to this day where like majority and Mickey can speak to this um, majority of my music listening is R&B it's literally engraved in my soul because that's what I was like grew up with um, and when it comes to listening to radio now I don't I don't listen to radio um, most of my music it does come from um, let's say whether it's like a curated playlist that either me, me or Mickey have made <laughs> Or it's just right. us. But I guess you say the closest thing I probably do listen to radio is stations on either Apple Music or Tidal or whatever your preferred music streaming is, right? And I will use and I'll try to like find and I find 
those sounds, those that love that I had in that. Um, not so much as radio anymore, but stations, which you can say are very closely closely related since, as they were saying in the piece, how some of these radio stations would have 34, 35 long minutes of just like pure interrupted, uninterrupted music that is smooth to the ears. Um, my uh, relation with late night and quiet storm radio specifically is, is similar to yours, Tyler, but mine is with my mom would listen to the R&B station in Baltimore growing up all the time, which is shout out 95.9 for sure. Uh, in Baltimore, definitely still a really great R&B station to this day. I think, I, again, I don't really listen as do most people. I don't think really listen to that much radio necessarily anymore because of streaming. Um, but funny enough, there was a, and I don't know who the host was. I probably should have looked it up before here, but whoever you are, if you're out there and randomly listening to our podcast, the host of the quiet fire late night, 95.9, uh, <laughs> station show in the, you know, late nineties, early two thousands. I was, uh, whenever I was just in a car ride with my family later on at night, I would definitely hear, hear you, but it was funny cause it was called quiet fire instead of quiet storm. Wait, in Baltimore, which I, I thought was kind of like a funny thing. I, I actually know that station because my, I have uncles and I have an uncle and cousins in uh, Maryland and they told me about that. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I did not use the same nine, one. 95. <laughs> yeah. 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 95, nine quiet fire late night. Um, but it does, the quiet fire is very much just a quiet storm station did all of the, the kind of things that, that were described in the video. So Elliot, I know you said it was going to be disappointing, but what is your experience? I mean, <laughs> with late night quiet storm. Radio? I never had any experience with it. I've never come across it. Honestly, like I know I've always known kind of what it is, but, um, I, I really never grew up with a station of like, like that. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that there may be like one that, or like that's accessible, like, but I never, peeped you know what i mean like right. it wasn't part of my experience growing up the radio i experienced growing up um it was was it was incredibly white to be honest like i very much <laughs> grew up with my parents so there's a station in new york 106.7 light fm um and if you know light fm you know that they'll play like songs that your mom will be comfortable hearing like it's just Right. Some of them will be her favorites. Others will be, you know, maybe a little bit more modern that she'll be okay with or your dad will be okay with. So you might hear a Sade. You might hear some soft R&B. But mostly what you're going to hear is like soft rock. You might hear like some, some Eric Clapton, some Beatles. You might hear some modern hits by artists like Maroon 5. And uh, mm. a, a record that I know that they played probably so much that it's just embedded in my brain forever. It'll probably be the last thing I hear in my mind before I die is smooth by Rob Thomas and Carlos Santana, um, which <laughs> is a song that, you know, it's a song. So I think my takeaways from the video were, it was very much, there was an experience emotionally for sure of, of being so compelled and like sort of in love with the entirety of the, the experience that people were engaging with with this station and and how it influenced so many and how also the music was so seminal right so powerful mm. in its own way and then of course like mickey said the political um contexts and the way that those developed over time as hip-hop sort of ushered in which i think 
Mickey earlier sort of alluded to will be sort of covered when we talk about our next article. But before we get there, I do have a, a sort of thing I'll post to you guys because I think the general thing that interests me so much, you know, outside of not, you know, I, I don't have the individual context with Quiet Storm, but you do get that feeling, right? Like, like Tyler mentioned, like that he doesn't listen to radio right now. Right. And we just generally like as, as listeners don't listen to radio. Radio has become a nebulous in terms of, in terms of big radio, it's just like a nebulous stupid thing (laughs) where people pay (laughs) to get spins to chart on radio charts. And you know, it's just, it's just a complete disaster. Our, our heart radio is a complete monopolistic disaster. And you very much lose the individuality and the the gripping nature of what makes radio so great in the first place, which is people playing cool records and talking. And mm-hmm. what I think is great is that young people or people these days haven't necessarily casted off the idea of radio in itself at all. Um, I think the idea of what makes radio great is still something that you can find. It's just not going to be in the same outlet. It's going to be in something maybe like those uh, stations on Apple Music, but it can also be in so many other contexts. I I saw that there's this this app called Station Head that people use a lot in fandoms um and station head particularly allows for people to just make their own radio show and play songs and then everything is sort of set up so where the songs are visible and there's different uh, channels through which people can like donate to the creator um on our youtube channel um with with my art collective (laughs) i guess you could call us um baby gang we kind of our, we do like a little radio live stream sometimes where I'll just play records and then talk. We did one last night. Um, and, you know, these kinds of things still touch people very much. Like this this kind of thing is, is so much, I think, what a lot of people are looking for, what a lot of people really enjoy, especially when you have a great balance of uh, somebody that you want to listen to, which, you know, hopefully I can be for people when they listen to us do that. Um, but also put, being put on to records or hearing records that you love already, hearing the records that you haven't thought about in a while. And as soon as they come on, you're like, oh, my God, like, I can't believe you just played Drank in My Cup by Kirk Bangs. Um, <laughs> oh, wow. But I also think that, you know, uh, one radio sort of experience that was um, – really like what what made this awakening for happen for me years ago was i don't know if you guys remember when earl sweatshirt and knowledge had us they had a a thing with uh, i believe beats radio it was called stay inside and they did a few episodes earl did some episodes earl actually did an episode with solange which was fucking awesome and they were fucking high as shit and playing records and then talking about art and getting between like making these fun like funny jokes or like these really human like sort of laughing back and forth about oh my god i do love tiara whack like yeah this is shit you know talking about how cool these artists are and then diving a bit into the artistic things and then going back to playing an incredibly diverse array of records and when i when when i found this it, it just it, it was so amazing to me like it was just the thing that I felt like I'd been missing because music without a context for which you can, you know, first come across it is 
very much robbed of a lot of what makes it great. It's the experiential factor. It's the memory factor of like, I was here, I was with my friend, and we heard this song. We were like, wait a minute, this is great. You know, I recently came across that Be Love record that um, I kind of had an interaction with <laughs> about earlier because I couldn't remember how to pronounce whether it's Be Love or Be Lovey. Um, but I came across that record when I was a fucking gone in a fucking taxi in Los Angeles weeks ago, my first trip there. And it was one of the bigger memories because it was like, oh, this is a New York record and I'm in Los Angeles and I really miss New York. And I was like, wait a minute, this is fucking we're the best. New York is the best, right? Like you just have these little thoughts and emotions when you experience them. So I guess my question and what I'll pose to y'all before we move to the next piece is um, what kind of role does, has, has radio and, and the experience of just being put on by some sort of host or some sort of curator to music like played in your experience with it? And how do you see it sort of shaping the culture or or taking part in the culture of of music listening moving forward from you know here Mm. uh i want to before i want to uh first go to kind of the first thing that you were saying and then answer that just the kind of communal element because i think that specifically is covered so well in the video uh of the kind of interactive style and communal style specifically what you're kind of talking about is creating community through radio uh of what quiet storm was of the kind of people like giving songs that were shouting out other people and the reasoning for it and talking with the host it kind of like brought the community get together and again the video also gives historical context for that as it's like the kind of healing after the trauma of the civil rights movement um but kind of like you know as society moves forward people continue new ways of doing that as the the medium kind of advances but when you ask about uh like radio experiences that that create a type of vibe i think like there's very few radio things that i remember specifically but quiet storm actually really or the quiet fire in baltimore like i said before really does like kind of hold a specific place of like hearing that kind of communal interaction on the radio was a thing I would hear and I, I would kind of be intrigued and taken in by that, that it was kind of random people on a public platform being able to shout each other out. That was definitely like an interesting thing. But the thing I remember from radio the most still, and I feel like I've talked about this before, maybe not on the podcast, but is like, I re- remember actually hearing like Kanye West's through the wire for the first time on the radio wow. and then hearing like the story, the storytelling about it. Uh, on the radio on and i'll shout out another baltimore radio station very legendary 92q or 92.3 um and it was like you know there's this guy produced for jay-z he got in this massive car wreck and he's literally like rapping through the wire and it was like you know actually hearing like the marketing and kind of stuff of like bringing in this new single for kanye through the radio and the storytelling about it and then hearing the song and hearing that his voice kind of sounded a little fucked up that's i mean that was like a real um, a real like very memorable moment of, of, of kind of a shift. Like it really felt hearing that song for the first time on the radio felt like a real shift in culture. Um, and I, yeah, I remember that a lot. What about you? Tom? Um, for me, uh, to go to one thing, I'm going to go on the two points as well. Um, 
the uh, what's something that the uh that the video essay did so well in the in, the, in its mix of interviews like it's its presentation did so well is like it um presenting the history for me um seeing how once again black people trying to find spaces where they can exist and have their excellence starting in the 70s to the 80s and how we're eventually going to like our articles go through the decades but um that's very important and how they're able to highlight that to have their voice more than anything else um that was i want to say highlighted really well in the piece um and secondly when it comes to moments in of radio where do mean a lot to me there are there actually are a lot for me um one I'm, I'm gonna give two and then we can move on but one is how me and my mom heard maroon fives sunday morning for the first time on radio disney and how that was one of the first few songs that me and her bond about uh, bonded about and we still talk about to this day um good old radio disney man <laughs> loved it but um the second one on a more personal note connecting to the black history and black and black spaces um excuse me black spaces um is i remember i went i went to an all black private elementary school in dallas texas that was small as hell called the miracle on pennsylvania avenue uh, called saint phillips shout them out because i still love them and i and I'm still have a connection to them to this day but something that they would play that I heard for the first time on the radio, and then we had in chapel later, well, not chapel, but like, you know, discussing later with our headmaster was Jahim's Fabulous, which in that song, at the beginning of the song, you have children speaking their dreams, their hopes and aspirations, and how that was very much what my school was about when I when I was there, because literally every single class was like 20 kids and all like in a terrible area. So yeah, that was... That is a pivotal, pivotal moment because black excellence in that regard and hopes and dreams and the radio moment to then be translated in the same day, if not later at my school was fantastic. Bro, I definitely 100% remember hearing that song on 95.9 in Baltimore for sure. They played the hell out of that song. It's like a perfect, perfect radio It's song. great. I mean, it's a great, it's a fantastic song. It's inspirational. It has the vocals. It has like the little children's choir and like moments of like, oh, it's so adorable. But also it's like, yay, triumphant. So it makes a lot of sense. Like it, it is the perfect, especially mid-2000s Mickey, radio song. Sorry to cut you off, Tyler. Mickey and Tyler what makes a perfect radio song <laughs> oh okay if we, this wants to be the, the last point or this has to be the last point um but really i would yeah, say the yeah, perfect yeah. radio song has the perfect hook sing um the perfect hook to sing along to it's no more than four minutes and it can be played no back swearing. to back <laughs> and no and no actually having to like blurp anything oh, unless <laughs> unless the censoring is extremely like it sounds cool rhythmic yeah you gotta <laughs> like the, the the best one for me is definitely the 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 best i ever had you to you the best you to you the best is a whole <laughs> different song like right. well if they if they made a legit clean version <laughs> that uh that you don't have to bleep out you mean oh i think sometimes i mean for sure, for sure, generally. Like, I know there's always... I mean, then you think, not to bring Kanye back, but, like, broke to broke for gold. Yeah, too. you ain't messing with no broke broke. <laughs> um, like, like, all these, like, the repetition censorship is probably the best censorship. It only just becomes a problem when there's so many curses that it just sounds like you put a stutter effect on the entire vocal. 
Um, right, right. Well, I think this is a good transition to the kind of end of the video and hip hop and how, um, like I, I just kind of bring it back around to what I started with it, how the kind of emergence of quiet storm is sandwiched between two periods of music and they talk about chocolate city uh parliament funkadelic came coming out the same year as the quiet storm song um but how the that era is sandwiched between two very politically charged times in history as well as in music and how uh quiet storm and that kind of era transitioned directly into hip-hop and there was definitely a little bit of hip-hop <laughs> hate for quiet storm kind of and that style of music not you know interacting with the the you know difficult reagan era uh political sphere that hip-hop was directly interacting right. with um and because our next piece uh for that tyler brought uh is about kind of the lost eras which is uh, much about the early eras of hip-hop i thought it would uh transition absolutely nicely. mickey you were very very right to do that um you're absolutely right your brain um, it's huge. Uh, and before we do that, I will uh, I will uh, repeat that this piece is Quiet Storm, how 1970s R&B changed late night radio from Vox and the producer, uh, and I believe the narrator as well as Estelle Caswell. This next piece, it's from Pitchfork. It is from our friend Tyler here. And it's called The Race to Save Hip-Hop's Lost Eras by Mosey Reeves. The subtitle, Why Are Early Rap Recordings So Hard to Find? And What Does the Ideal Historical Archive Look Like? Tyler, first, is it archive or archive? And second, could you please tell us about the piece and why you chose it today? For, firstly, it's archive. I don't know who the hell says archive. <laughs> yeah, whoever. You, <laughs> I don't know. I've literally never heard it pronounced archive. Never heard archive. <laughs> you think you thinking about you thinking about the? I don't. You have a. He's in New York, so maybe he just had a, a bagel with chive cream yeah, cheese no, and it's I getting mean, to his head. I've, <laughs> listen, I may have said archive once or twice in my life. Anyway, Jesus Tyler, Christ. <laughs> let us know. Um, but uh, yes, um, the race to save hip hop's lost eras. Um, I chose this piece because. So as uh, I think I might have told Charlie and Mickey, I cannot remember if I've actually discussed with you, Elliot, but I recently, and I say recently, I mean the last like two months, finished season two of Wu-Tang and American Saga, um, which of course is loosely adapted of the actual history of the Wu-Tang clan and everything that na um, nature. And it's, of course, it's biased because it is, it's uh, also executive produced by RZA and I think also written by and directed sometimes by RZA, but for anyone who has not seen it close your ears but like here's the thing it's also history so whatever at the end of season two um this basement gets flooded and so much of that work is lost and as i read and as i read into the article it started off with wu-tang and i was like okay this is perfect this is actually like it's transitions perfectly for me like where i'm at where i'm at mentally and not only you discuss like just like oh just actual lost tapes but it's like the actual archive uh, archival like lost lost tapes of like history and how like there are so many like pieces of music marketing whatever it may be from these early eras before the internet really hits its wave matter of fact because the internet that we know doesn't that that we know of it doesn't even hit until like the late 2000s doesn't mean not late um, but like the the late two uh early 
uh well before the 2010s but like before uh like in that era but how these pieces of music are just on demo tapes or floppy disks and some will never see the light of day some artists are embarrassed to show these pieces because they're like art as we know artists are sensitive we ourselves are artists and then some of them are just like oh i are actually looking forward to getting these pieces of music but for some groups like sin sin their debut album is still on the shelf of some record company that never put it out so i chose this article because as we are gaining more and more technology influence understanding of the internet and everything is on the internet we have a whole trace of hip-hop history that frankly unfortunately will not see the light of day um and 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 something that i found that this article did brilliantly it didn't have all the answers but it had me raise so many questions about hip-hop in itself where are we moving like how we're going to move forward to help us like and once again another aspect of black culture be archived so the world can see it so our peers can understand so hip-hop peers can understand it music purists whatever you want to call it can understand it black people can understand it because once again our time stamp right now is for hip-hop is uh what, what is it 19 uh ni- 1973 50 years essentially when who knows it, it's because of the culture itself whatever tapes that came before that could come bef- could come way way before that in brooklyn and queens and new york and other parts of the world that helped fuse together to become hip-hop and black culture but yeah that's why i chose this piece um and for you and i guess the question i want to start out with with for you guys right is because something that they mentioned at the at towards the end and of course we can jump around about this piece because it's a very large and very long piece but is something they, they raise is like it's almost like money versus history they bring up that point of like is it great to have everything archived by these big establishments that are just going to make money off of it and that's just one piece or is it just or is it really it is great to have it because we need it um because i the way i made me think about how these how white european museums have so much african like architecture like it was from old tribes or like things they just stole and while it's great that yeah people get to see this and they have a greater understanding of the past and everything in nature those things were still stolen and there's and now being monetized today and i feel like hip-hop is always in a culture of like trying to fight for its life to not be this just cash cow like monetization of like culture and that's and hip-hop is still struggling with that but yeah uh, how do you guys see the almost like dichotomy of like having history but also people trying to monetize this history mickey let's start with you yeah well this is the perfect time uh every other uh podcast episode i'm on where i say the answer to all the questions is to just eradicate capitalism (laughs) (laughs) this is the perfect time to say it uh get that out of the way (laughs) but i mean you know that's the real thing is like you know if there's no financial interest in the archiving of it then the you know the respect for the craft and the right people archiving it for the right reasons 
you know, it, it makes it so much easier. But with, you know, with the actual value of archiving the history of hip hop, it's it, it's going to get kind of on some level corrupted within the vicinity of things. And it's a kind of like a give and take. Um, but kind of what the article does really well, or I don't, I don't even know about, it's not that it's not well, it's just very different and unique and interesting to me. And I'm going to think about it when I'm writing my own pieces is the article almost seems like purposefully doesn't give the answers. Like it goes against the kind of traditional ideology of like, I have a thesis statement and I'm going to prove my thesis. It like that doesn't exist anywhere on here. Like the thesis, if anything is the question that comes in, but that's like at the beginning of the seventh paragraph. Uh, And so are the questions that kind of come in of about like, you know, how, how is, hip hop supposed to be archived kind of, or how do you do it? Um, but it really, this is like the perfect piece for uh, like a discussion about the subject because it really is just kind of like chronicling what has happened and then opening it up. Um, but yeah, as far as like, what should be the answer? Um, I think, you know, capitalism muddies it. And I think, uh, there is no real absolute black and white. Yes. And no, answer and that kind of is what the article lays out yeah i think that i think that simple answers are always questionable um there are there are many simple things to be said that can hold true but when it comes to finding solutions solutions are never simple themselves it's it's you know it's one thing to say like yeah well it shouldn't be about money it's true that will always be true but then at the same time actually affecting that right actually bringing that into place is far from simple and i think that the reality of of the world we live in is that we lose things um we just we constantly lose histories we constantly lose materials and resources things are just you know thrown away or burned to the ground or they 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 run out of ability uh, with with time and it's it's often devastating in this case with hip hop history i think the history of hip hop is one of the things that people you know i don't want to say that people overlook it i think a lot of people do a lot of people don't but there's so much that you can enrich in your personal life in your intellectual perspective and in you know artistic expression and in, in, in industry practice all these things can be changed significantly with an added historical perspective it's history that teaches us and so if history is incomplete if we don't have good history that tells the truth then we're doomed to make mistakes and we're doomed to oversee things so when it comes to the history of hip-hop we know a lot and we know a lot of things that can give us general ideas right of what things are and how things should be but at the same time, losing so many things in, in the history of hip hop allows for there to be, I suppose, a lot of flaws and a lot of misgivings in terms of how things proceed. And so to make things less abstract, um, I think, for instance, when you watch old footage from hip hop gatherings, like in the 70s, and you watch the process that takes place you watch how people enjoy themselves how they express themselves you watch 
how people conduct themselves in the room depending on gender and gender expression or depending on age or whatever. You learn a lot of things already about society, society and culture in that particular place and in a larger context. You learn a lot about how hip-hop found its roots in terms of what was so great about it in the beginning that burst into what it became. And you learn about things that you can apply, like things in hip-hop, old hip-hop records. We see it all the time now, right? Just have turned into brand new hits, like because of the nostalgia factor, of course. But nostalgia is not the only thing that makes old stuff good. It's also the good stuff. It's the stuff that you maybe have seen get out of fashion or become overlooked or become unsung in terms of cadences with rappers, in terms of types of sampling, in terms of length, right? Like a lot of old hip hop records, for, for instance, are long because they stem from the, the long record being played at the party and being looped and being DJed, emceed over. And so you have these records like Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince, where it's like you might have a record be nine minutes long and there's five verses and there's disc scratch solos and there's storytelling aspects. None of that stuff really works now, like in terms of, well, it works, but like none of that stuff is really applied now at the same level. Who's to say that taking that, taking those elements and applying them into new context wouldn't completely take off? I mean, storytelling is still one of the things that compels people the most in hip hop. It's just so underutilized. When you hear a record that's like, remember the, the Y&W Melly record from a couple of years ago, right? And obviously there was a lot of context surrounding that. But just the compelling nature of listening to somebody tell you something that happened, something that they've come up with on a song, you don't get it anymore. You don't, you don't get that kind of approach to songwriting. You don't get the kind of approach to songwriting where, you know, I think there's a great value in songs being short. I'm not one of those people that just hates on TikTok and hates on short two minute songs. But at the same time, the homogeneity of the, the homogeneity of it, I don't remember which one homogeneity anything. Um, the homogenous nature of it makes it so that so much is lost because you're not finding, you know, that that five minute, six minute record that's just a fucking vibe up and down that can be played at a party. And it's, it's the party suffers because of it, right? Like if think you think think about a good party that you've been to, a lot of the time, the musical moments that stand out are the ones where the music sets in for a longer period of time. It, it becomes like you know you, you have DJs that will cut records back and forth at the same BPM, right? That kind of thing is like an adapted version of playing a record over and over again, looping it, putting things on top of it. And so for 10 minutes, hearing that same rhythm over and over again, and it's a sick rhythm, and then there's little, these little adaptations and these solos and whatever, that becomes this whole energy because the music is just moving in that same rhythm and that same cadence, and everybody's into it, and then it just builds and builds and builds. Whereas now, you go to a party, you play eight TikTok songs, and it's nine minutes in total, and none of them really flow, and everybody's doing the, like... Like, it's just a completely fucked up party experience, right? And so these are the the surface level ramifications. I mean, I don't think enjoyment is necessarily surface level, but like these things when it comes to partying and enjoyment are just, you know, less serious, some like in a sense, in terms of the takeaways you can have 
from going back to the oldies, going back to old music and archived footage, archived records. But imagine all the different things we could learn about each other and about black history and about these neighborhoods and about these records. And so that was where the stakes are because a lot of people might be able to look at a piece like that and be like, ah, well, who cares, right? Like there's so much music already. There's so many music. There's so many records coming out. There's so much documentary. Like who cares if some shit gets lost, right? And in a sense, like acceptance is, 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 is a part of life, but we should have an understanding too of the stakes. And so when you see folks really working so hard to try to assemble this stuff, I think that their jobs are some of the most noble you know, that, that people could have because to, without having the, the capital incentive, the dedicating, dedicating so much of this time just to find things and just to try, kind of pry things out of people or to, to, to negotiate with people to figure out how we can locate this thing. It might even be 10 seconds long or whatever, but we need it. This cassette tape, whatever we need it, right? This kind of thing is, is, is pure. It's a very pure, powerful thing, I think, to see people do this work. And I think people will always be doing this work because that's kind of human nature. There's always people that are digging through archaeology and digging through the histories. But the more power we can give to them, the better, I think. Something that I thought of, as you're speaking, Elliot, and I just kind of like finally hit me. Um, And they mentioned it briefly in the article, but I don't think they... Um, go all, all on the way because like they already talked about so much is um, hip hop is an archive. Hip hop is an archive because the con- not only is it sampling, we're constant we are we are constantly telling our stories over and over again, but in new ways, adding elements to it, adding our history in every single record, right? Like bear with me for a moment. How like you can have like a record that's that could have like that can be like a Kanye record, and then I just saw I just remember looked on YouTube as how like how Luther Vandross is is like you have the whole transition of like the Luther the Luther record going to slow jams, and you're getting like two histories right there, right? Black music is constantly archived through hip hop, and it's never going to die in that regard. And so like with so I think yes, it is it is, and they are making it known how it is important for black music to be archived as a black person myself as a black american where this stuff came from it's it's going to always be there and yes and there always be people that will care about it but i think something that this article this article does so well is it makes you care about there being an archive it makes you realize yo if we if if we should at least be in control of our own narrative right if you can say what anybody is to tell your own story Tell your own story. Make sure you have control of that. Make sure that we have. It's and yes, burn capitalism to the fucking ground, please. But at the same time, though, we're gonna need that stuff, whether it's through um and, and preferably through when our within our hands, like the museum that's gonna be open up in like next year in twenty twenty three. And hopefully, it's done correctly because I because obviously I'm not a part of that process, but we can only hope, right? But through this music, through these samples through the dance, through the beat breaks that are still happening today. Cause it's, cause it may not always get it. Cause like, think about it. We had swimming pools. We did have swimming pools as, as a party record that had a story. It wasn't like long, it wasn't like nine minutes long. Sure. But it like, it was a record that had storytelling and it bumped. 
it bumped. <laughs> Good Kid, Mad City is a storytelling album, and a lot of the songs that were hits did have stories in them. So it still exists. It still exists. It may not may not to the degree, of course, that it was like you know happening like twenty, thirty years ago. But we got it, and we and we're going to can and as long as hip hop is alive and breathing, we will still have it. Um, and this article really made me want to make sure that I, I dug back and got to every single mixtape, record, whatever I need to for an artist that I like. Um, but yeah, yeah, that's that's it. It really it really touched me, and how I really thought of that when you were speaking as well. Hip hop will always be an archive. Absolutely. Well, and there's something to be said about being. Um being able to to do that in a piece so shout much much love to mosey reeves for doing that Mickey, big shout uh, out would you what did you have something to to comment on before we moved on to the next piece um just uh, sure I'll, I'll wrap us up on this one quickly because i think it's time to push on to the third but uh i think what tyler was saying about hip-hop being an archive is hip-hop is continually a, a historical archive because hip hop from the beginning to now has always recognized its pr- progressive historical importance. And I think the piece did a really good job of, of kind of noting uh, th- that kind of like grind mentality of hip hop and that kind of pushing forward of hip hop makes it hard to archive because hip hop is essentially, and there was a quote, artists who tend to look forward, not backward, aren't always the best archivists of their own work. Um, but because hip hop is continually moving forward, you have to literally stop the momentum in order to archive it because it, it is of the most progressive art forms of the 20th century moving into the 21st century. Absolutely. Incredibly yeah. wise words. Yeah. And I can, I can, I can so end much. it on, on, can I just end this thing on one, yeah. on one last quote that was from the late, great Greg Tate. Um, as they said in the article, hip hop is not what it is today or what it could be tomorrow. And yeah. That's me on that one. That's just the kind of thing that like makes you really fall in love with hip hop again for probably like the, the thousandth time this week. Um, these these multitudes, right? And I think when it comes to these multitudes and when it comes to ideas of hip-hop legacies and archiving, I think that offers a good transition to my piece, which is about Versus. Now, Versus is one of those interesting neoliberal projects. It's a project that offers the, the working class audience and the progressive movement a type of product a type of respite from some of the the things that make us a little bit what's the word i'm looking for here cynical cynical it's cynical i think that it answers cynicism but while at the same time becomes a bit cynical because it is a capitalist entity is what it became it started of course as people just in the pandemic having some time to do some hop on some zoom calls and play records and then people just chatting about it and chatting about it and it building to that level and then when you have something that people gravitate to naturally and that creates discussion creates great audience engagement you will have capital 
you will have the ability to create a product that makes a lot of money. And so Swiss Beats um, latched onto that and created this something that happens some, somewhat somewhat frequently, but not super frequently, um, event and you know multi-platform sort of discussion platform in Versus, where you get these two artists or groups of artists to come together and play and battle essentially with their catalog what could be cooler right what could be cooler except it becomes as it grows more and more capitalized into something that is indeed still cynical and still a little bit less than what we want it's not the dmx versus jay-z rap battling in the on the on the hard knock life tour it's you know it's more like the caffeine smack url rap battle event you know what I mean? It's like, oh, okay. Well, I guess we're we're advertising some off-brand vodka company. Um, so pieces like this by David Dennis Jr. for the undefeated, called "Can Anyone Beat Jay Z at a Versus?" We lay out the odds from Future to Eminem to Missy Elliott to Lil Wayne, and look at how these dream battles will play out. I think pieces like this speak to what makes this shit so fun. Because when it's, once it comes to competition and debate, there's so many things that you have to think about and that you can have fun talking about. And it becomes very, very, you know, it becomes very entertaining and very communal at the same time. Like, it's a place where people can have a conversation better than, like, nothing will start a conversation more than debating between, like, two things that both people will have an investment in. So, Jay-Z, I think, everybody knows that Jay-Z's Jay-Z. His catalog is his catalog. But before we start looking at these specifics, before you guys read the article yourselves, were there any particular artists that you said, okay, I think this person could take Jay-Z, or did you come from the standpoint of there's no way? So I'll start with Max. Who can be Jay-Z? Mickey, it's on you. Me? Uh, Did I say Max or Max? Yeah, I mean, pre- <laughs> I said yeah. Max. Did I just read the word? <laughs> I've had people. I've had read that. <laughs> I've had people messing up my name Mickey, my whole life, I'm but so never sorry. Max. That's a new one. I saw the word um, Max somewhere and then fucked up. Uh, you're good. Um, so like pre-reading the article, did I in my you know in the Twitter sphere of this argument, did I think anyone could beat Hove? Um, I think. And I think the article like says this pretty blatantly. The thing that was the kind of uh, deciding factor for mostly is like, where is the battle? <laughs> because if it is person to person and this like said, I said it and it goes down to the very end of the article even too with like, if you go below the Mason Dixon line, like Wayne really, it's going to be tough to beat Wayne. Yeah. Um, I like if you have the battle in Chicago, like I think Kanye wins like that's not even like arguable. he might win in New York you know what I mean like I think Kanye's the big right that's the thing too and and that was my I mean my thing overarchingly is like the one person who if you take location out of it who I think really need I, I and this said this article said that Wayne had the best shot I think honestly because of the the momentous nature of Kanye's production and the fact that even though Jay-Z has a plethora of things, you have Jay-Z basically can't 
use any of the throne shit because Kanye right. produced basically all of it and like and anything that Kanye produced from Jay it's just it's not that it's like not usable it's just not going to hit no. as hard because like Kanye gets credit for any of the songs so and, and that said Jay-Z has plenty enough to do 20 without anything Kanye ever produced no kidding and people have said that I get it I just think like the momentous and kind of like anthemic nature of Kanye's uh. music which was displayed in that that Drake, Drake and Kanye, Kanye LA yes. Coliseum I think like I think that was pretty that was like if anything's proof like that was that like listen it's gonna be close no matter what but to just outright say there's no shot that Kanye beats him That's and this foolhardy. is location aside I, I yeah I don't know I mean that was my thought is like I I don't I don't think think it's like a a route by any means and I don't think it's a clear way Tyler does Kanye beat Jay and if so and if not who does or if so, who else does? So the, the I'm, but then like if you do it in Toronto, Drake yeah, I was like, too, of course, to, like to to be to keep it a buck, man. It, like besides the location thing, there isn't. They even said it like with the Drake part. There is like an age thing too, maybe. Yeah, um, yeah. Because like if you're asking certain people, like if you're asking, if you're ask, like if you're asking my girlfriend, like she's gonna be like, while she does like Jay Z, she she's not gonna fuck with him like that she's probably gonna fuck more with drake or wayne like she from she from tennessee right so like she, it's like jay-z bumps in her whip if it's with if it's with beyonce right but like right, it, right, right. It, but like at the same time though right it's like like my like my niece i got nieces and nephews my nephews my nephew don't know a jay a name of a jay-z album i know because i've asked <laughs> I know because I've asked him, and he and he's sixteen, right? He's he's sixteen. So, but also to answer that question though, real quick, yes, it is possible that Jay Z can lose a verses, but yeah. it is hard fucking pressed. It is hard pressed, and like the closest one, the closest ones to have a shot are those top three of Drake, Kanye, and Wayne. I say the closest. I think the closest shot, regardless of location, similar to like Mickey saying, I do think it's probably Yay. But even I mean I I mean I'm like listen to K-pop too man and like them boys out there love some Wayne bro they love some Wayne and they yeah. love some Drake so like even if you if you even did it on a world stage that might be different there's like a probably oh, there's man. a there's a East Coast stage there's a West Coast stage a South stage a U.S. stage and then there's like a world stage and That's you might have different answers it may it's gonna get broadcasted live if it happens and if it does then everybody's gonna see it and everybody's gonna have their own standpoint. Which is also fun, but I think the danger, the, the dangerous thing about Jay Z's catalog, that he has, I think, over everybody else, I'll say, over any other catalog in hip hop, is the the range. It's the ability, you know. People say like, oh, if he goes to the south, like, whoa, that's a big over Kanye. Listen, I don't know if that's true at all. Listen, the problem is that Jay Z has more years on Kanye and more legend on Kanye. So Kanye, yes, has the very diverse bag and eventually will outrun him on that, although with new direction. Bro, 20 songs? Here's 20 songs. Thing. Here's the thing. Jay-Z can go to the South, and he won't He won't get blown out anywhere. That's the thing. Jay-Z you say, you does say not, get, not get blown out. Wait, hold up, hold up, hold up. You say he won't get blown just, out, my dude? He doesn't get blown out anywhere. I'm going to say that about Jay-Z. He might, he'll lose. He'll lose some. He won't beat Wayne in the South. But he doesn't like he can play the Ha remix in the South. He can play Beyonce stuff in the South. 
he can play newer, like, like, fuck with me, you know I got it. Like, he can play shit that you're like, oh, I forgot that Jay had Dude, that. If, <laughs> hold, hold, if Jay-Z plays fuck with me, you know I got it. <laughs> against Kanye no, he's versus, not gonna play against Kanye. he's gonna lose because <laughs> the thing is like I, I mean if he goes it's gonna be really tight and if he plays that song in a versus Kanye you wins don't fuck with me, you know I got it did no I'm kidding um uh but that's but my my point more so is he has this ability to pull from anywhere and you'll you everybody remembers the J, the big Jay Z shit. Everybody remembers the classic Jay Z shit. Everybody remembers, oh my god, like Reasonable Doubt. Oh my god, you know the pop hits like the Alicia record. The Alicia record, which is a New York record, still goes anywhere. By the way, um, he can take that with him, so he can handle a pop crowd quite well. He can handle. I think West Coast is tough. I think West Coast is tough for Jay, but I think. Even for he even has a record with Punjabi MC. Like I'm telling you, like the Jay Z diversity is like something that I think people are. It's easy to overlook Jay Z. Kanye got Katy Perry, bro. Kanye does have Katy. Look, my frank, frankly, I don't think anybody beats Kanye. This is dissolved. The whole meeting is dissolved. I think no. I don't think anybody beats Kanye. All right, r- real quick, real quick, because here's the thing. It's like I just want to say to some as like a, as a down south person, real quick. Um, you want to talk about hits, right? And you want to talk about legacy, and maybe like who had their first number. The first number one goes, I goes to one, if, if, and the, of the last two is Wayne. It's Little Wayne. Wayne had lollipop before. Um, what's his name? New York's. Um, what was it? Empire State of Mind. Little Wayne had hits. Was on everybody's features. Are you talking about range? To a range, bro. I got, it's like because I'm not trying to. Get, I'm not getting heated because here's like I love Jay Z more than I like. <laughs> I like Little Wayne to keep it a buck. But at the same time, if we're trying to like be honest. We're trying to be honest right now. Little Wayne had I lollipop. Mean, he had like a milli. He had like, bro, bro. I think. Well, here's my distinction. Matter of fact, Little Wayne was on Soldier. Destiny's Child. They both got Beyonce records. That is a great. That is a great. They both got Beyonce records. I will say, I don't think, when I say range, I don't mean range in terms of like artistic range in the catalog. I don't think Jay-Z has the most range of any of artists in hip-hop artistically. I think he has the most range in terms of like onstage bag. Like he has the most songs that he can pull out in front of a crowd that sneak sneakily will work with the crowd on a level they weren't expecting. And those moments are very big for verses. If you pull out a rec, like there are a lot of verses and a lot of battles where it's like, once the person does the move that is unexpected and has it, it, it lands, that shifts the tide. Because now it's like, oh my God, well, if you won around with some shit, like for, with some South shit and you're Jay-Z and you're going to get, like, I think the Wayne battle is close. I think Wayne takes it probably, like, obviously it depends on the locale. I don't think Wayne is the number one, like, com- com- like contender against Jay-Z and a versus. Just because the way people hang on Kanye records, like, the way that people, 
and obviously he has his just gigantic yeah. army. Well, it's it's kind of it's a thing. It's the thing is just that that Kanye has the big thing over him, which is him as a producer. If he's allowed to use that stuff, like what happens when Kanye busts out overnight celebrity? That's the, or yeah. busts out shit from Commons yeah. B. You know what I'm saying? Like it just you know that's. I that's mean, it like depends on the crowd, thing. and that's the thing too. Like Kanye, if we're going, if if it's a crowd of heads, like if it's a crowd of hip hop heads, Jay Z wins. But Kanye does have that back. Yeah, it all depends. But I think I think what I I want to to bring us back to the piece. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, uh, I I just wanted to talk about. I think that um, David Dennis did a really good job of crafting uh, the the structure for the argument, which like sets it up for others to talk about yes. it, which is like talking about the location and then the the X factor that kind of is the deciding factor between each person and like specifically with the Wayne one he was like location entirely matters with this and like if it's below the Mason Dixon line Wayne takes him probably um, and then why Hove wins at the end of the day or how Hove wins at the end of the day um, I think really really set it up for like conversations like this between us to happen yeah. even even more specific way yeah I mean this is what I wanted I think that this this piece I think what we can do to tie to the piece before we go, because I do understand we're running long, even though I could do this for a very long time. But I think one of the questions that I think ties to the piece is like, and it's a fascinating angle in the piece, is that he creates odds, right? Betting odds for each matchup. And so, for instance, Lil Wayne is the two to one against Jay-Z, which I think, honestly, Jay-Z would be the two. Like, I honestly think Jay-Z is the underdog in that matchup. I think he's the underdog in a Kanye matchup, unless it's in New York and unless it's around heads. But I do think what I would love to ask you guys is what odds would you most likely take, like, gamble on? Like, what? So, you know, I don't, I don't condone gambling oh i mean i think giving because kanye is three to one yeah. right like i, I would take yeah, kanye yeah. three to one yeah. all day yeah. three to one all day that's crazy yeah at just at those gambling odds like a hundred percent i'm taking kanye three to yes one. I, I i think kanye is the ult, is the versus is the versus like the the god the only problem the only thing is if the only person who beats kanye is kanye if Kanye goes on a versus and decides to play all of Jesus, it's <clears> like, <throat> damn, like <laughs> you just don't know what he's going to do. Right. Right. I'll say even that, I mean, with the actual odds, you know what yeah. I mean? Like, because I mean, I think the odds are set up pretty, like, I think that the five to one Drake is correct. And I think that that's like actually pretty good odds yes. for Drake though. Five I to one. Put, like, I think yeah. I would be tempted to, I would be tempted to take that bet because there's just, at five to at five, the to power one, of old manning a person is very very underrated. If you can go on stage yeah. and be like, "You're old." Well, <laughs> here is the only thing that's actually we didn't talk about this, and I'll say this: I actually think the biggest advantage for Jay is he actually has had some semi modern success, yes. like nothing like Drake, but. Jay's response to that old Manning thing can be pretty, pretty knifing. Yeah. Like, I think that would actually be a kind of Achilles heel if Drake, like, really, really tried to dig into that. I think Hove could be like, play the all the way up remix or like play some shit from 444 that would like make well, the a play. The, the play would be story of OJ because <laughs> the oh, context for sure. would simply overwhelm Drake on that platform. 
it would he would never open himself up to be that susceptible. He would ban that record yeah. from being played. Um, <laughs> another, uh, Tyler, I, I don't know. I don't know if there's other ones that we haven't mentioned. I will quickly shout that the 15 to 1 Eminem odds are extremely. Ex- I wouldn't say I would favor Eminem in that matchup, but there's factors that could give Eminem the play there, especially 15 to 1. Oh, I'd, t- I'd take the 15 I'd to 1. I mean, I, the thing here's here's the reality, though. But I'm putting like, $5. That, as much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I could see I, the fifteen to one odds is a bit bit wild when you think about like the actual span of the careers. Yeah. But with the type of platform that versus is like Jay Z would wash out exactly it, just on the type of platform. Yes. Like any location besides maybe I guess Detroit. Well, but like the audience is. I would take I would take the odds fifteen to one Eminem in Detroit. Oh, if it's in Detroit, <laughs> then the odds are not fifteen to one. Also, if it's a crowd of white people. It is, yeah, but that, that would never happen. happen I was just gonna God. say if it was like hella white folks, then that would just that would it, hella white be kids it. in the crowd. Eminem sweeps. There's no Eminem record that they consider bad in that in those communities. I've seen YouTube. Let me let me, ju- at, let me as the one white person <laughs> on this show say no one wants to see that. Please never do that. And and and, and you're absolutely right. But for fifteen to one odds, you know, yeah. Like, the yeah. 100 to 1 future odds are, is, is, is hilarious. To that me. was funny. It was low-key disrespectful, but it was funny as hell. It was disrespectful because it isn't just March Madness, is it? No. No. And I mean, well, here's the, I mean, the reality, like, even head-to-head, Jay-Z still beats future in Atlanta, but it's much closer than anyone wants to get. Correct. But that's literally, true, true. I mean, there's other places in the South, too, where future does give him a little run for his money. But that's the thing. Here, Here's the last thing that I need to say, at least, is like, Versus is also like a purely legacy platform. True. And that's what like really gives Hove the serious advantage. So like Future's legacy is still really being built, yeah. but Jay-Z of anyone in hip hop, because of what how good 444 was and the like extension of his career, the only other person who has like cemented that level of longevity and a legacy is kind of Kanye, but it still doesn't stretch that far. And because versus at the end of the day, I mean, obviously from being crafted by Swizz and Timbo, but also like reaching back even before them on the platform because it's a legacy platform. That's the thing that really gives Jay-Z the win. Absolutely. Tyler, before we close, I want to ask you one last question and then we'll, we'll outro out. Who on this list, who is not on this list, who outside of this list has the best odds or is potentially the biggest boogeyman when it comes to a versus competition? I'm going to say I'm going to low-key agree with him because like he was pretty like mid on the list. Um, like It was like midway through, but I would say Buster. Buster's probably a dark horse that could like, you know, just with his classics and what he's done. Like, and similar to, like, Jada, right? Not to say, like, obviously, like, Jay-Z isn't a slouch, slouch on the mic, but, like, the way Busta can rock a crowd because his legacy and, like, the type of records that he was on, I would say Busta. And that's, like, and that's my final drop the, um, drop the mic moment. Uh, not to be, like, dramatic on this, I genuinely, like, and it may be because I don't have total context, I think giving Busta 17 to 1 odds is honestly kind. And I don't think that he has seven, like a shot in hell. To it's, be totally, it's I don't tough. think there's anyone. I don't think there's any another New York artist that has a shot 
Like that is like impossible. But then also the the artist who really does have a shot who's not on the list, and I think Charlie has said it in the chat, but I would have said it Snoop. anyway. And it, it do, location matters is Snoop because Snoop is the legacy artist of the West Corps. But also, but I will also say this: if this shit is in L.A., yeah, Kendrick would yeah. be way closer than people yeah. think. It would. I would not give him the W. But in L.A he would be better than what the last person on this list is. like he's in LA his odds are, are anywhere on the west coast anything california anywhere in california kendrick has better than 100 to 1 odds for sure kendrick has has i think is the the favorite in cali to be honest like i'll go there but i mean oh, i God. still think the the most likely kind of you know it just because again versus the legacy platform is snoop on the west coast excellent well, Central Sauce is also a legacy platform, and we have had an amazing, legendary podcast today. I think, <laughs> Mickey, I think Mickey, <laughs> and I think Tyler so much. I also think DJ Charlie on the ones and twos. And shout out to uh, Charlie for his uh, his pilot episode of his series, Chilling with Charlie, where you get to listen to him talk about <laughs> music. And uh, and play music. Uh, his his pilot episode is about Quiet Storm, so check that out. We love out you, too. Charlie. We love you. We love you. We do. We hurt you so. We have had three great articles today. Three great pieces, really. The first, Quiet Storm: How 1970s R&B Changed Late Night Radio from Vox by Estelle Caswell. The second, The Race to Save Hip Hop's Lost Eras from Pitchfork by Mosey Reeves. And this last one from The Undefeated: Can anyone beat Jay Z at a versus? We lay out the odds by David Dennis, David Dennis Jr. From here, we'll call out any independent writers that wants to submit work, that want to show us stuff. We want to see the best hip hop writing that nobody's talking about enough that is getting unsung. So if you wrote something great for your eighth grade book report, if you are on Reddit, if you are reading some great blogs that you think need to get put on, please send them towards us. We are always looking for great independent writing, for great writing in general, because music writing is a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful world and one that we enjoy talking about clearly. If you can, do rate and review this podcast because we work oh so hard on it and we would love for our support to, towards our audience to be matched with support from our audience um <laughs> which is so we're basically gonna blackmail you um no we're very thankful for anything you can contribute whether it's just to listen but a rating review would be incredibly incredibly great send us messages as well let us know your your thoughts reply on twitter and whatnot and as always thank you so much for listening this has been in search of sauce from Central Sauce and the Fifth Element Podcast Network. I'm Elliot Tank. Have a good one. Bye. Bye. This episode of Search of Source featured Elliot Sang, Tyler Jones, and Michaela back on the Central Source Creative Collective. The episode is edited by me, Charlie Taylor, the Fifth Element Podcast Network. Music for this show is fucked up by Barcy. Thanks to Chop Records for its use. This has been Central Source Fifth Element Podcast Network production. Links to Barcy, Chop Records, Central Source Fifth Element, and Content Company episode can all be found in the full show notes below. Thanks for listening. We hope to see you next time as we continue our search for Source. And Snoop would win. <laughs> <laughs>